Welcome to Executive Stories, a podcast series hosted by me, Brad Finning. Come on a journey with me as we explore not just the businesses, but the personal lives, the backstory behind remarkable directors and senior executives. Welcome to another episode of Executive Stories. Today I had the great joy of uh, interviewing Jane Thomason. Jane is the CEO of ATB Associates in Australia. Um, Jane has translated a passion or distilled a passion that she has for effectively helping people, especially in underdeveloped and developing countries, um, into a career which now sees her as the CEO of a very large organisation. But part of Jane's remit is not just to oversee ATV Associates in Australia. Jane has part of her remit to be able to follow her passion in areas which don't necessarily have a financial metric attached to them. We talk about the importance of following your passion um, and putting money to one side to enable you to really focus on the the genuine part of that journey. Uh, You'll see when we talk about Jane's latest um, manifestation of that passion for helping people is in the blockchain and the aha moment that she had um, a few years ago in how it can be applied and how it has actually got current use cases in countries such as Papua New Guinea. Jane um, is colourful, Jane is smart, Jane is going to knock your socks off um, when it comes to distilling complex technological concepts down into really practical everyday solutions that resonate and are consistent with her passion. This is a good one, enjoy. Jane Thomason, welcome to Executive Stories. Uh, Pinning you down to do this interview has been a task. You are everywhere um, moving around, so thank you for coming along. Very excited to have you on the podcast. Happy to be here. So the, the framework for today's conversation, to get to know you, is a post that you did on LinkedIn yesterday. And it's 10 things I wish I knew when I was your age. Now, when I saw that, I thought there's got to be a whole backstory behind each of those points. And by exploring some of those with you, get to know you a bit better and people can get an insight to you, the CEO, the the blockchain expert, um, and uh, find out who you are. So I'm gonna kick off with number one on your list. And that is, you have one life and it passes fast. Don't waste it, find your passion and follow it. What do you wish that you had done when you were younger in that respect or the, the, the wisdom that you have now? To be honest with you, I don't wish that I'd done anything. And the reason that I say that is because I had a, I had a lesson when I was quite young that I really, really appreciated. And that was um, my first job in Australia working in a haematology oncology unit. And when you work in a haematology-oncology unit, a lot of the patients who are in that unit die. Mm. And I was a young social worker, so I was spending my week with people who were either critically ill or families, you know, who were losing loved ones. And I realised at that moment what actually mattered. So, you know, to to understand what matters when you're on your deathbed Mm. is really important. And it's the things like saying I love you to people, taking that overseas trip that you've been planning for and then suddenly a life event intervenes and you can't go, or not taking that job and moving to Sydney because you were afraid of 
making the move. So it was all of these regrets that people had. So you actually saw people in that position. It wasn't sort of a moment of self-reflection and where you saw yourself on that bed and thought, if I was that person now, you actually saw people with regrets or the opposite is with, with great joy. Yeah, and what I realised was that because people, young people would be struck down by a life-threatening illness and life was normal one day and the next day they're in the haematology oncology unit and all of their hopes and dreams were washed away. And what I realised was you don't know when that day is going to come for you. And I, I kind of vowed as a result of that experience to live every day as if it were your last because it could be and never have an opportunity come to you that you want that you could take then and not take it. So, so I've always tried to live my life so that you know, if, if one day someone comes and says, sorry, you know, you've got a terminal disease, that's it, that I go, well, that's really bad, but actually I'm really happy with the life I've had. I've done everything that I could possibly have done when I had the chance, and I'm really happy about that. I tried to live every day as if it was my last and get something positive out of every day. And so I, I was just lucky to learn that early. Most people yeah. don't learn that early. Because two of, I read elsewhere, two of your main goals in life are to have a fulfilling career and to be a great mum as well. Um, would you say that having those two questions to sort of address has helped frame what you've wanted to do with your life? Um, I think so. In terms of a career, you know, I've really wanted to kind of have an impact with my life, if that makes sense, to, to do something that matters. So it's not... It's not a career to be important, it's a career to um, you know, do something good in the world and, and that's been important to me continuously wherever I've worked. And you know, I think being a parent is the most important job you can do. I suppose when I say that it's because a lot of people think you need to have leisure time mm. and I've got great kids, a fantastic job, you know, a career that I'm passionate about, I don't need any hobbies. My life is my hobby. <laughs> I wake up every morning excited and I don't need other things. So I think it's more kind of that conversation that people think you need to have something else other than work and family. Yeah, and so oh, it sounds as though you're an incredibly fulfilled person. Rather than looking at the individual achievements along the way, you are very fulfilled with what your life comprises at the moment and has comprised. Well, I mean, they, I always feel I can do more, but I feel incredibly lucky yeah. to have had the, the life that I've had and be able to do the things that I've done and very privileged and humble in some ways, you know, to have been working in developing countries where people allow you into their world, allow you into their homes, allow you to try and help make their lives better. I mean, it, you know, that's an enormous privilege to have lived a life that's full of that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and sort of focusing on one element of that first question is, you know, find your passion. Can you tell us what your passion is? So my story, when I kind of thought about this, so from a very young age I wanted to travel, so travel's a passion of mine, but when I was about 14, uh, my mother took the three children on a community aid abroad Oxfam study tour to Indonesia. Um, and we went around and looked at all these different Oxfam projects as well as touring around Indonesia. And there was an Australian social worker 
called Mary Johnson, who'd been a volunteer in central Java, working with poor communities there for 14 years at that time. And I was so kind of moved about what she was doing and what she'd been able to do with these poor communities that, you know, I thought that's that's what I wanted to do. That's where I got my... So you were about 15 at this stage. Yeah. So, so why, what drove your parents, what took your parents there to take you to Oxfam projects in Indonesia? Did they have a similar passion? My mother was a very kind of interesting intellectual person who loved to travel, who loved to, I guess, show us the the bigger world out there and help us to understand social issues. She never worked. She was a stay-at-home mother, but she invested a lot, I think, in trying to broaden our horizons. And, I mean, I don't really know why she did that. I think she just thought it would be interesting and that we would get something out of it. And I imagine it was cheap because it was Oxfam as well. I really don't know. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think we were brought up to see no boundaries. And I think, you know, that's important. I was also very lucky to have a, the principal of my school who, it was a girls' school, but she brought us up to see no boundaries, to see no boundaries between men and women, to think that women could do anything that they wanted. So I kind of grew up with that both in my family and at boarding school. Was that both your mum and your dad had a similar approach to life? Was it mainly your mother that had that kind of influence over you? Well, we we didn't see dad a lot. He worked a lot, but, but you know, he's a bit of a maverick and a boundary pusher. And so in the sense of not feeling that we needed to conform to social norms and things like that, I think he gave us that. And I, but I think my mother tried to. <laughs> the genes seem to run strong in the family. Um, knowing, knowing your son, Jock, um, the, all those traits that you described of your mother and of yourself are definitely flowing very strong in the gene pool, I would suggest. <laughs> but I think it's also about um, having a go and just having the courage not to, not to really care what people think and not... Because a lot of, a lot of the reason why people don't do things is because they've got a fear of failure or a mm-hmm. fear of what other people will mm-hmm. think or a fear of looking stupid. And they're all the wrong things. You know, I, I think that you, you need to address those fears and just have the courage to go and do something that you want to do and see what happens. Because, you know, we don't come from a poor country. We come from a rich country. We The worst thing that can happen is, you know, maybe you lose whatever money that you've got and you've got to start again. but the very bottom of the line is you can get welfare. So we're actually incredibly lucky and so we shouldn't not take risks in my view. What do you think holds people back from taking these risks or following their passions? Is it the fear? Like, just I'm wondering what it is that's, because I think there are a lot of us that would have these things holding us back. And you know, what's, think, the, what's the key to sort of I, unleash it? I, well, I think, I think some of it's fear, but I think some of it's, like social structures because even even for me and you know I've been pretty good at doing the things that I wanted to do my mother found me a bit terrifying actually because I was (laughs) I was quite a colorful teenager and and colorful is what you're wearing today matching orange shoes orange pants orange top and orange glasses (laughs) colorful in many senses of the word yes well she found that like a bit horrifying actually and um so she was always trying to 
kind of make me calm down and make me be a little bit more mainstream. And and so she kind of thought that because it was clear I cared about people that what would be a good job for me would be to be a social worker and then later on I could possibly marry a nice professional person like a doctor and maybe do some part-time mm-hmm. charity and that's work. that's the social structure that you're talking about. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. so, so she kind of pushed me in that way. Mm. Um, I actually wanted to be a famous actress, but that didn't go down well. <laughs> but, you know, you go through these things, so you make choices for the strangest reasons. Yeah. So um, I wasn't on the road to being a famous actress. I thought about being a lawyer and my father said, there's too many lawyers, you'll never get a job. So I quickly gave that one away. Imagine what the situation's like now for us lawyers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And um, and then I, I took a year off after I finished school and my mother was enrolled me in social work because that was like the nice occupation she thought I should have. And I had this connection back to this social worker in Indonesia and so I thought, Okay, I'm not going to argue. I'll just go and do that. So I just did that. But for four years, I really was um, at parties and having a wonderful time. And I don't think I learned anything about <laughs> social <you're> work. <laughs> well, I wasn't. I, no, but I figured out. I figured out how to pass without going to any lectures. It was a good system, and it worked well for me. Sounds like my law degree in times living up on Sunshine Coast. Yeah. What what was it though about social work and I think there's a theme through all of your career when you look at it about wanting to help people. Is it the feeling that you get of helping someone or is it the feeling of connecting with them um, that you find so appealing? I, I don't know how to answer that because I just think we're all given a set of skills and talents mm. and and I'm good at help. I'm I'm good at helping people. I'm good at solving problems. I'm good at making things happen, and I care about humanity. But I've got the skills to do something about it. Um, it it's not, it's no more deep than that. It's yeah, just and that, those skills. Like, is that just the skill to have a go and to have the energy to do and to execute rather than any sort of like specific skills? So it's no, an I attitude. Think, I think it's an attitude, but I think you know you. I listen to people, and I can understand and empathise with what their problem is, what they want, and help figure out how to fix it, whether it's at a, you know, at a global level or at a national level or at a human level. Um, I just think I've got some set of genes that enable me to do that. Yeah, and, and the thing that is quite remarkable about your career and you as a person is how you've taken this theme of helping people, connecting, solving problems, and adapted with the latest of technologies because I'm not actually sure where you're where you latched onto the blockchain um, but your ability to use the blockchain in your your field of passion is, is quite incredible because it is at the forefront you are a techie person you know you've described yourself as being a social worker in the early days and consultant and CEO but I don't know that I would have described you as a techie person along that journey necessarily um, how have you managed to adapt like that? It's, it's quite incredible. Well, so I first heard about Bitcoin back in about 2011 from my son, who does spend a lot of time with startups and tech people. And he told me about this and I said, oh, what a lot of rubbish. 
And I wish I hadn't said that because it was about 10 cents at that time. So I, I was aware of it and I was aware of its exponential growth, but I hadn't really thought about it. And I had a conversation with him oh, maybe two years ago and he said, we were talking about Bitcoin and he said, you know, Mum, you should look at this technology blockchain that's, that's essentially the technology that underpins Bitcoin because it's going to be big. And I didn't do anything immediately, but I started to just read a few things about it and understand it because it's hard for us to understand because it's almost antithetic to everything that we know and understand. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, mm. and, then, and then one day, I don't know why I was sitting there and I was thinking about the Banda Aceh tsunami, the Boxing Day tsunami, because we went in during the reconstruction period. And when, when we think about it, we always think about the tremendous loss of life, and that, that's absolutely true, and it was absolutely tragic. But what people probably aren't aware of is everything else that got lost. So all the bank records got lost, all the land records got lost, all identity records got lost. So no one knew who owned land, no one could access their bank accounts, yep. no one knew who was lost and who yep. was found. And then the donor money started pouring in, but no one knew if it got to the right people. So just one day I was having there, sitting there having a moment and I thought, oh my God, if all of this stuff had been on a blockchain before the tsunami, it wouldn't have stopped the tragedy of the event, but it would have made the rehabilitation and the reconstruction just so much better and quicker. And then I thought, I've got to go and learn about, I've got to really understand this because people are working on it for fintech solutions at the moment to make rich people richer. Mm. But if I really start thinking about this, then maybe I can think about, you know, how to reduce poverty and inequality in the world because I think this technology can do it. So I was a bit trepidatious, I must say, because like I'm not a tech person. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's a very complex, especially in the early days, I think we're all becoming a little bit more familiar with the terminology and how the blockchain works. But especially back in the early days when you were looking at it, it was, it must have been, it's intimidating. <laughs> it is intimidating. So, so the first big, other than talking about it a bit and reading about it, the first big step that I took was um, I went to London FinTech Week in January this year. This is how fast all this stuff goes. And I sponsored the hackathon because I thought if I'm going to understand this, then a really good way to understand it is to give them a real third world problem mm -hmm. and get them get all of these smart teams to hack on the problem that I care about. So we went along and we actually went, um, we took with us to a delegation from the Bank of Papua New Guinea who were, were interested in this. And we gave them uh, two real PNG problems to hack on and we were mentors and, and then judges at this hackathon. But what it gave me was this amazing 48-hour um, immersion in blockchain. So these hackathons, people start on Friday night and go through till Sunday evening, spend the entire time in this one venue trying to figure out what their solution to these problems are. So that was really fantastic because, you know, I went around and sat with all the teams and they're giving their ideas. So in, in that process, then I was learning about blockchain and what it could do, but also in the process, they were learning about how some of their assumptions just won't hold true yeah. in poor, low infrastructure settings. So that was, 
that was a really good way to start learning about it and hearing some of the terminology and figuring out how it worked. Was it a leap of faith for the PNG officials to sort of go there and you go, trust me, we're going to be testing or trying to throw your problems into some modern day technology which you may or may not understand? Or, or, um, or did they get the blockchain and they saw the potential? I, th I think a bit of both, but you, you need to understand that PNG is leapfrogged out of the Stone Age into the 21st century in a relatively short period of time. So they are absolutely adaptive to new technologies, new innovations. The, you know, the pace of change that their society's gone through is really fast. So that's the first thing. I mean, one of the reasons somewhere like Australia is going to be slow to uptake this is we've got it pretty good. We've got pretty good systems yep. that do largely what we need. And so we'd have to undo all of those to let a disruptive technology come in and, and really get a grip. Whereas... Less developed kind of company, companies. They can leapfrog faster. Yeah. And it's, if you look at... I mean, the really interesting case studies are the Eastern European countries who came out from under communism and they had nothing. They were poverty-stricken. They had no social systems. They had no government structures. And they had to build from nothing. So... Estonia is the global case study for the digital economy, but that was forced on them because they'd come out from under Russia and they were destitute and they had no system so they could go straight to something like digital government and blockchain um, and they've done it. And so you see those emerging economies, if you like, in Eastern Europe that have probably moved the fastest. And I think that um, emerging economies elsewhere in the world, in Africa and Asia and in our region, are going to be able to go faster because they don't have the legacy systems and in some cases they don't have the highly regard, uh, develop, you know, compliance regulation to stop them doing something new. So so the PNG guys, I mean, they were on a trip to London, so that was good. Yeah. It was kind of fun and interesting. And, and they, there was a problem to be solved that affected them, so what did they have to lose as well? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. financial inclusion is one of the big priorities of the governor of the bank. So uh, they were really interested to see what they could learn. And other central banks around the world are looking at this technology, so they weren't the pioneers. They knew that, but they came to learn. So it was... Um, it was a great experience and then for the rest of fintech week i mean i i must say i was drowning a bit because it was all fintech everyone was yeah. talking about money and transactions and cryptocurrencies but what i found which was really gratifying was when i talked to people some of them would talk to me for about 30 seconds and then walk off trying to find their next unicorn because they were there to find really smart tech people <laughs> but a lot of people would go really like, I didn't know this technology could be used for social good. I'd love to help you, you know, keep telling me what you're doing. So I felt I met enough people who actually were interested in what I was talking about that I felt that it was worth um, persevering and, and just getting my head around the technology and what it could do and what are the verticals that people were already working on and then what weren't they working on. So what I did then, and I wrote the first post in London was I sat there and I thought I have to figure out how this technology can be applied to problems that we've got in developing countries to you know help with climate change to reduce 
preventable deaths in women and children, you know, to deal with financial inclusion and identity. So my way of working that out was to start writing about it because I figured if I wrote about it, I'd have to understand, hopefully, and then it'd be communicated in such a way that someone else reading it would go, oh, it can do that for us as well. So, you know, that's... How much are we seeing of the, the theory of the blockchain and the theory of solving these problems being put into actual use cases where you have people in the highlands of Papua New Guinea going, I'm a benefactor of the blockchain and I didn't have financial inclusion before. For example, that might not be the example that you can talk to, but well, is that starting to permeate through? Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the things that we're really working hard to try and do. So um, I've done a number of things since January. So one of the hackathon winners actually came up with this really awesome device that allows you to take a digital fingerprint hash it onto the blockchain without electricity, without a smartphone, with only a 2G mobile phone and without internet. So we've actually taken that to proof of concept stage because that's one of the problems with technology uptake in developing countries. They don't have smartphones. They don't have, you know, sort of fast internet and easy access to the cloud. So you have to have technology which will allow us to use the power of something like blockchain, but in a way that it can be connected to the user. So, so we've we finished that, and we've. I was just on the phone today. We've now got um, authorization from the bank and the government to be able to do it at a bigger scale. So, how does that work, though? Like, it's a really interesting use case example. So, you don't need electricity, as far as I understand. The blockchain is all on the web. You need to have connected computers. So how does it? How, how do you get that thumbprint hashtag up to a web-connected world? So I think this is the point where you need the technology consultant to come in and explain it. But it we we it uses um, a Raspberry Pi, and you'll need to go and look that up. <laughs> um, a, a very cheap solar panel. Yep. And a two G mobile phone. Okay, so it does upload from the village, for example. Through mobile network, yeah, through the mobile network. Because here I was thinking in my mind that you take the device away from the village and then you go and connect it into. No, no, no. It connects from there, and so that that's what we were testing. So we did it in a a village six hours away from the capital city, which which had no electricity and had only two G, and um, we we were testing it to see if it would work, and and we took a number of people's fingerprints. So. And the next stage is going to be to do it on a bigger scale, but then put all of the protocols around it. So we're not just showing, well, it randomly takes a person's fingerprint, but then what do you have to do to attest that that is that person? Um, and then how does the system work? How many of these devices do you need? Do people need? Because you know, these devices actually could be really valuable for people in that, because our original concept was that they'd be in a church or a school or a police station so people could come in mm-hmm. and get their identity so taken there. One, you can no. Share them communal. Exactly. But that's what we thought. They're quite cheap to make, so I'm sure if they were manufactured they'd be cheaper. Um, but in thinking about it, because the guy who we've got working with us is, you know, quite brilliant. And he's just excited about inventing things. So he didn't stop. Is he from the hackathon? This guy? Yeah, he's the yeah. hackathon winner. Yeah. Um, he's just a, an awesome French 
developer who lives in London and, and he's been working on this, but but he then, the prototype version three that we tested, it'll do the fingerprint, it'll send and receive digital currency, and it will trade off-grid solar power. So it's sort of quite a powerhouse for a villager if we can get it working. It solves three of the world's biggest problems in one device. Yeah, and I guess that's a useful point for me to sort of look at one of the other points. Your framework tends to things I wish I knew when I was your age. One of them is keep your eye on the prize. Is the prize here with blockchain and um, social good is it to actually see, like, is that the prize that you're looking at to see implementation where you see increase in living standards, increase in financial inclusion, and you're doggedly attacking that prize? Is it the prize? I think the prize is attacking big global problems that, that face us. So um, whether it's poverty or whether it's financial inclusion or women's and children's health, or another piece of work that I did that's coming out shortly is around um, blockchain and climate finance and green prosperity because it has a lot of potential to be able to support some of the green finance initiatives you know at the community level and make sure that climate finance actually reaches who it needs to reach so those big social problems the prize is that we manage to deploy blockchain and maybe in association with one of the other new disruptive technologies as well, like AI or something like that, to actually be able to um, bring the, I think there's 1.5 billion people in the world who are unbanked, to bring them into the financial system, to allow them to access money easily, to allow them maybe to borrow if they own land and that kind of thing that's not available to them now. Um, so there's so many ways that deployed this technology could work. and so. Aside from our own proof of concept, what, what I've been doing as well is trying to um, meet up with blockchain companies who are doing things already in developing countries and learn about their solution and see if it's something that could be deployed elsewhere and then kind of matchmaking them a bit yeah. with governments that we're working with. So instead of everyone having to build their own thing, try and find people who've already solved these problems and see if you know, they can co-design solutions somewhere else. Um, and then a lot of advocacy, just getting people in government and people who work in international development to think about this technology as something very transformative because I don't think, I don't think people realise how fast that this is all going and how quickly it's going to disrupt the world that we're in. And so part of what I'm trying to do is communicate to people because they can't ignore it. It's already happened. Mm. It's already happening. But back to your question, you know, is there, are there people standing around going, thank God for the blockchain? No, but I think they will. But they, it'll be like the internet. We don't know how mm. the internet runs, but mm. we know what it does for us. And I think that'll be the same with blockchain. But having said that, it's early days with the technology. There's some reasons why it can't scale yet. And one of the reasons that it can't scale yet is because the, the platforms that it's deployed from are at the moment too slow. They can't have the number of transactions that would be needed for a you know, mass deployment. And also um, the, the Ethereum platform, which is the most used and well-known platform, 
use requires all of this computational power which mm. is incredibly expensive so for something that's really going to scale that would be too slow and too expensive but the, it's like the race for the moon there's the race to be the blockchain platform so i think it'll be like google wasn't the first um, internet search engine that we used but it's become the biggest and the most powerful because it sort of works the best for what most people want and i think there's a lot of people racing to be that blockchain platform provider. So I think that's what we're seeing. So my view is that'll happen. They're all racing for it now. But if we work on the application end now, so we get the application for the financial inclusion or for supply chain provenance working, it'll plug into the platform that can be fast enough and cheap enough and scale scalable, mm. and then it'll scale. But it's, it's too early yet to actually think that mass deployment is um, yeah is, is is a today phenomenon it will be and I think quite fast and you're we, we talk about passion your passion in, the, in this area of social good um, the, when you first because the blockchain takes up a large part of your working commitments these days is that correct not really I'm no. supposed to be running a company so yeah, well, <laughs> and people might be listening, um, wondering as well, are you getting paid to do this stuff, this advocacy, this passion of how I can use the blockchain to solve social problems? Or is it a, a project? Because people... It's, no, it's so, my, my job is to, so my job is to run a company. Yep. Um, it's quite a sizable company and that's quite a big job. But when I first, after I sold my company to... Apt Associates, who I now work for, which is a company who's dedicated to social good. Its mission is to improve the lives of people worldwide. So there's absolutely nothing inconsistent that I'm doing at the moment that's not consistent with their vision. But one of the things that I negotiated with them was that, that I would have a proportion of my time to pursue interests that I had. You know, when I first started I was working a lot on the global strategy for women's and children's health. So I've always had a negotiation that, you know, there's a portion of my time that's set aside for doing things that interest me. And by and large, it intersects with the interests of the company as well. Um, so, so as part of my CEO job, I'm using my time that's allocated to things that I want to pursue to do this. And, and when, you, when you travel as much as I do, it's quite easy to just fit on, oh, I need to be in Washington, oh, and there's a blockchain summit on, I'll just stay an extra day and go to that. So it's it's not that I'm having to make a whole trip. I've just made the world my blockchain laboratory. Yeah, because I think there's this temptation to think, though, in life that you know, everything that you need to be doing that is part of your job, you need to get paid for. Um, and, and reconciling that you could have a passion that you don't need to get paid for um, is something that I think people have trouble getting their, their heads around because this could legitimately turn into a, a revenue stream for ATB as um, governments of underdeveloped companies look to you countries look to ATB as a as sort of like the the leaders in this area and how your passion can develop into a, a revenue stream but you've got to have that good authentic purpose in the first place and that's where I can come out to this thing about the passion. And that's why you're doing it is because of the passion, not because it's a geeky thing about blockchain. And but I think if I think if ever you only do something because someone pays you for it, you're in the wrong job. I, I think 
you've got to find something that you're passionate about that you can do when you're awake and that you really care about it. I mean, I, I've never ever said I'm going to do something or not doing something based on whether I'm paid or not. And I've done so many things in my life that I'm not paid for. Um, you're right though, in this, in this particular instance, it's fascinating and it's a really interesting area to be in, but it absolutely could turn into a revenue stream for the company. And obviously from the company's point of view, they're pretty excited that I'm out there being a thought leader and that actually there might be a contract there somewhere. <laughs> I haven't found it yet, but you know, it's possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think there's a lot of wisdom there for, especially for younger people, um, that following your passion, taking a, an economic kind of backseat in, in a way, can pay, pay dividends and ultimately leads to fulfillment. Because you said to, at the beginning of this interview that you are happy with your life, you're happy with your job and what goes on and just sort of being the person that's turning up to work and getting paid for your salary, I imagine that you wouldn't be fulfilled and have, have said that to me if it was the case that you didn't have all these extra passions that you can flow through. Um, it's really insightful and I must say there's a very personal agenda there for me wanting to get beneath of it because I have seen a lot of your blockchain work and I wasn't really sure how it did fit into your job as a CEO um, of ATB, which it is a very sizable company, um, and something for everyone there to, to take away. But I think it's also, the world's different than what it was. No one said if you're a CEO, you have to go to the office five days a week and sit there. And so the way that I'm a CEO is that, you know, I think we have a distributed company we have office in Brisbane, office in London, office in Canberra, office in PNG, several countries in Asia. And I sit across the top of that and I have very capable and competent people who are by and large doing the jobs need, that need to be done. And so I see more my role as a CEO is connecting in with them, making sure they're clear about the strategy, making sure they know what they're supposed to be doing and allow them to do it. and then. That's kind of the day-to-day -day running of the company, but my job as a CEO is to look for the blue sky out there for what's for our future. So, you know, looking here is very consistent with what I think a CEO should be doing. You should be out there talking to people, finding out what the future is, and then figuring out, because we will be disrupted by this for sure, like you will, yeah, and like many people will. And so, you know, if we don't get ahead of the curve, I've said that, in uh, in the US, I said, if we don't watch out, we'll be Kodak, because it's a very traditional company that works in very traditional ways that have worked well for 50 years. But I can see that everything's changing around and the whole company's got to relook at the way that it's doing its business. And do you think you see as enough CEOs looking for the blue sky out there, or do you think too many are too introspective in their businesses? I can't comment on that, but what I know is the pace of change in the world today is so fast that if the CEOs aren't out there and seeing it and knowing about it and thinking about it, then they're probably in danger. Because mm. I encourage all of the, the lawyers at Clark Kent to, it doesn't matter what rank they are, how long they've been here, 
I give them books and I point them in the direction of people that are talking about the future of the legal profession because I think there has been, even still to this day, you got your job as a lawyer, therefore you can kind of set and forget it. I can't say I'm sorry. Um, those days are gone. <laughs> it's so what do notaries do once digital signatures are in place? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. There's going to be... communication is becoming really accepted. The only thing that seems to be lagging is the execution by deed with the witnessing. But that's going to be overcome really shortly as well, you'd think. So you're spot on. And particularly in Europe, the notaries charge an arm and a leg for what they do. Mm. All they do is put a signature on a piece of paper. Anyway, digress. Jane, I know that my time is up with you. Um, thank you for A, coming in to see me and give me personally such a great insight to some of the things that I have been sort of smouldering away in the background about your personal life. Um, so I found it really interesting and I hope everyone else did. And are you hanging around Brisbane um, for the foreseeable future and how long would that be um, in case people want to reach out to you? Um, are you around? I don't know what you define hanging about around Brisbane. I think I've been here two days in the last two months, so if that's hanging around. Um, yeah, well, so I travel a lot, but um, over the next month or so, I think I'm going to be in Brisbane a bit, but it's just sort of catch me if you can. Okay, LinkedIn, try you, see if they can get a hold of you. If people oh, yeah, if Especially anyone, if there's people sure. blockchain um, sort of want to get a hold of you. No, I mean, I... I'm very responsive um, on LinkedIn. If people want to link with me, um, you know, I'll find a way. You know, as I said, I'm on this, I don't think I said it on the podcast, but I'm on this hackathon where there's 57 teams all around the world hacking and I would have managed to speak to about 15 of them. So in all the different time zones. So I think I can talk to someone in Brisbane. Yeah, and um, listeners, if you do speak to Jane and you get a message from her at, say, 3am, don't be surprised it is part of her normal working schedule. <laughs> <laughs> Jane, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you. If ever there was a conversation where you could look to someone for having the ability to focus on the prize um, and follow their passion, that was a conversation which demonstrates it in spades. Thank you very much to Jane Thomason. Uh, if you'd like to get in contact with me, please do. I'd love to hear from you. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, Twitter, the Executive Stories website, executivestories.com, or find me on the Clark Can website. See you next time.